The following is a production of Galactic Netcasts. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. These stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello and welcome to the 39th gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 31st of January. I am your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and oh, you know, I forgot to put in a new pithy saying here. Now I feel kind of sad. While you're gathered at the meeting table. There you go. Why don't you just have a pithy saying while you're gathered at the meeting table? I like that we've gone meta already. Yes, we had, right on. That's the kind of show that we have here, Rob. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that voice that you have heard, uh, at least one of two of them, is Rob Wheeland, and he is our special guest this evening. Uh, Rob has contributed to many different game systems, including, God, the pedigree here is is amazing. Shadowrun, Star Wars Saga Edition, Firefly, and Fate, and uh, there is a an even more expanded list. And uh, we were very lucky to get some of Rob's time this evening. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, we're going to talk with Rob about you know the games that he's worked on and try to pick his brain on freelancing and um, find out a little bit more what that's about and how to get into freelancing for game design and things of that nature. Uh, the other voice that you heard earlier is the second-in-command here at the Adventure Party, Glenn Bittner, and he is a movie reviewer with his uh, YouTube show, The B-Movie Bunker, and also the creator of the RPG called Mist Runner. How are you, Glenn? I am still full of Mexican food. <laughs> See, uh, Glenn and I live about two and a half hours away from each other, and every once in a while... Every once in a great while <laughs> lately, uh, we get together and we actually uh, had lunch this evening at a out-of-the-way uh, Mexican restaurant in, in Milwaukee, and it was fabulous food, and we ate way too much of it. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> Wow. Yeah, I'm still full, too. We, we scheduled to have dinner with somebody else this evening, and I just had, like, a cup of soup and some toast. <laughs> Anyways, it's enough very, of food talk. What, what's that? It's very easy to do. There are a lot of great Mexican restaurants here in Milwaukee. I oh, and it, this place was wonderful. It's not like a huge, you know, like like a Chipotle. It was a smaller kind of a lunch counter kind of Mexican restaurant, and you know, you can hear the the food being prepped in the background. You don't hear any microwave beeping. It's all done on the grill, and oh, it was it was fabulous food. Fabulous food. Seats about 12. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may know the place you're talking about, I and mean, you're right, it's fabulous. El, El uh, Tucanazo. Yep. Oh, no, I was thinking of someplace else, but I've heard that good, some very good stuff about that place, too. Yeah, it's way out on uh, Oklahoma. I think it's on West Oklahoma. 
Philippines and Oklahoma. Yeah. It's uh, okay. Okay. So if any of you people listening to this <laughs> get to Milwaukee, we highly recommend that Mexican restaurant. You will you will not be disappointed. Anyways, enough of food talk. Uh, we are going to do our regular roundtable uh, with our game review and gaming news, and we're going to talk with uh, our guest. But right now, we are going to jump into the uh, review portion, and Glenn has a game that, just by the title alone, uh, has piqued my interest. What do you got? Well, I mean, this game's been out for about 20 years now. But it's, oh, uh, gosh, yeah, I see. Yeah. It was published in 95. Well, a lot of people don't don't know about it, and many people have forgotten about it. And it's it comes pops back on on availability every now and again. But Mystery of the Abbey, it's from Days of Wonder, and the uh, designers are Bruno Fiduti and uh, Sergey Blagett, who I know I get his name wrong all the time when I pronounce it. But so a good pairing. I mean, Bruno Fiduti uh, did Mission Red Planet, which I've talked about before. Formula yep. E, uh, Sergey uh, did Chelsea Camelot, Cargo Noir. So I mean. These guys, you know, they make some pretty good games. And what this one is, it's it's what I call Clue done right. I'm not <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Clue. Just something about the game. I mean, aside from the the whole roll and move thing is kind of bothersome. But just some of the game, it just I wanted more of a challenge, and this definitely gives you more of a challenge. So this is set in an old abbey, medieval French abbey, and one of the monks has been murdered. And now you are trying to figure out who the culprit is. Now, in Clue, you know, you've got your, what, eight people that you can narrow it down to? This is a lot more than that. There are three different categories of monks, and each category has eight monks in it. So you have to decide, was it a Templar, was it a Franciscan? And as you're moving around throughout the Abbey, you may encounter other players, at which point you can ask them questions. Now, you can ask them a simple question, like you might say, have you seen Brother Theodore, or do you think the killer had a beard, or was the killer fat? Stuff like that, where you can try to narrow down because you have a list of pictures of all the monks that are in the abbey. The other person can answer a question if they choose to, or they can hold their finger to their lips and say, shh. I mean, they've taken a vow of silence and they cannot answer you because they cannot talk. <laughs> now, many people might say, well, if I want to win, I would just never answer questions. The trick is, is if you actually answer someone's question, you can then immediately ask them a question back. And they have to answer you. They can't follow up with, oh, no, I took a vowel sentence because obviously they didn't. They just asked you a question. As the game progresses, uh, you can meet with the abbot, and you can give possible ideas as to who you think the killer is. You might say, I now know that the killer was a Templar, or I know that the killer was tall. And you will give these, you know, suspicions to him. And at some point, you may want to solve it and say, you know, I know now that the killer was, you know, Father uh, Joseph. If you are correct, great, you get points. However, any suspicions you had that were correct, you also get points for. You can actually win the game if you have suspicions correct, even if you aren't the one who solves the final crime. Oh. So if, if you get enough suspicions correct before and someone else doesn't, but they, you know, it, it kind of does that whole thing where, include where, you narrow it. You do all the legwork, and you narrow it down. Then someone else just gets a turn before you and swoops in and steals the thunder. This prevents that if you can get all those different clues out. Yes, you're helping other players, but you're scoring points for yourself while doing it. So it's just it's a really cool game. It it, it is a little longer than I know. You generally like to sit still for Brad, but it it does ninety minutes is, is on the low end. It's usually about a two hour game. Okay. Okay. Um, you're looking at three to six players. They recommend ten and up. 
but uh, just a lot of fun, especially if, if you like to stretch your, your brain a bit and have to think a bit, and, and if you like deduction type stuff. If you're looking for something beyond Clue, this is a, a great game. See, for a game like this, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a big fan of uh, Brother Cadfile. I don't know okay. if you ever saw... I've never read any of the books, but I've seen the uh, Sir Derek Jacoby, what is it, Masterpiece Theater, the BBC uh, yes. series that he did, and uh, truly, truly wonderful. And it almost seems to have, I can imagine, that kind of a feel to it. Uh, yes. For a game like this, I think I would be able to sit still for, for that long, just because your brain is so thoroughly engaged and you need to be thinking throughout the entire process and paying attention to the facts that other people are picking up while they play. So, uh, Rob, uh, how would you play a game like this? I've played Mystery of the Abbey before, oh, um, okay. and, I, and, I, and I quite enjoyed it. It's it, it does have a feel of a game where uh, the designers played Clue and were like, ah, you know what, these are the three things that we would fix about this, and then kind of thought afterwards, like, okay, so what's a good theme for this? And I think they went to either their brother, Cat Fail, or, uh, like, the Umberto Echo kind of, you know, okay. monk solving a mystery kind of theme. And it has a lot of... The, the design reminds me a lot of Camelot in that it feels like it has, like, smaller games that kind of plug into each other. Sure, yep. Uh, the deduction stuff kind of plays, like, the old game Guess Who, because you have those kind of categories of, do they have a beard? Uh, are they okay. bald? Are they fat? Are they skinny? And you you kind of knock those off on your little notepad as you go through the game. But you also have to go through, if I remember correctly, there are there's a clock that plays, and you have to yes. like do monk stuff during the day in addition to uh, solving the... The, the mystery. So, like, you can't just hang out in a room and, and think about stuff. You have to go do prayers and talk to the, you know, the various other people. So that adds a, a neat little time management piece to it as well because you're like, crap, okay, I can either go here and find out more about the the killer or I can go here and maybe make a you know, a pronouncement and get some more points that way. So so there's a, a bit more of a strategy element than that than just a straight deduction game. And and it, it really keeps people wrapped up and engaged because you're not, like, I've played games of Clue where I'm like, I don't know, I don't care, I, I wasn't paying attention. But because there's so many little pieces going on, it's very easy to get pulled into one thing and that kind of pulls you into everything else. Yeah, sure. and you, you will kick yourself sometimes when you're like, I'm going to go way over here and investigate this thing over here, forgetting that at the end of the next player's turn, they're going to call mass, and then you have to go back to the church. So you just like, ah, I wasted so much time going somewhere I couldn't even get to. Yeah, okay. And I love that you, I love that you mentioned the Umberto Echo, because the first time I played this game, I said, well, now I really want to watch Name of the Rose. Oh, yeah, sure. I, oh, I, I love that movie. It's one of those things... Name of the Rose, Hot Fuzz. There's another movie that uh, if it's available, I will watch it. It, it doesn't matter because I just I love it so much. Uh, but, they Chris, but it has Kristen Slater in it, so they had, they had to leave some of that Clue element in there. The, the less than good. <laughs> hey, no. It looks like they uh, also have an expansion for this too, which is interesting. It looks like it adds 12 cards. Uh, it's called uh, Mystery of the Abbey: The Pilgrim's Chronicles. 
so they did add a little bit more to the game as well. Let's see. Uh, how much does it approximately retail for when it is available? Uh, general retail of this uh, MSRP is $60. Okay. Still within that that range that we, we always talk about. It's in a weird state now because Days of Wonder did kind of get gobbled up by Asmodee North America. So oh, that's right. Yep. Whether or not this is going to remain in print remains to be seen. Do you think that they would, for a game that has a potential of... I haven't played the game, but I'm going to make an assumption here that it's really freaking awesome. Would they not continue to publish it, or would you think that would be in their best interest? It, it comes down to how many copies they think they can sell. Oh, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. So I guess if you can find it for a reasonable price, pick it up. Just if you see it, buy it, because you may never see it again. All right. Good to know. Thank you for that. And see, now I've got another game on my wish list that I, I want to purchase. And it is called Mystery of the Abbey. Hey, uh, Galactic Netcasts would love to have your support. Uh, if you like what you hear, consider supporting us uh, to help pay for our web and audio hosting. Your support for as little as a dollar a month can kind of help us uh, keep things running and grow the network. If you do support us for like $3 a month, uh, you can get a monthly newsletter with extra stories related to all of our shows, and we have a number of them, and uh, I'll talk about them a little later on in the show here. If you do support us at $5 a month, you get an extra episode of each of our podcasts, and that is only available exclusively to our patrons. So if you want to support us, and we would greatly appreciate it, you can go to patreon.com slash galacticnetcasts. On to the news, and I'm really kind of excited about this. Uh, I do another podcast called the Sci-Fi Geeks Club, and a while back we talked about this is actually one of my, my picks of a, a story for sci-fi and sci-fi tropes, and one of them was The End of the World, and this particular game system called the End of the World role-playing line gives you a number of different scenarios or types of End of the World scenarios that could happen, and they have now released the Alien Invasion End of the World, and it's the third book in the series the other end of the world uh, books, uh, the alien invasion invites you to come as close as you safely can to humanity's last days. As extraterrestrial invaders attack and civilization crumbles, you choose how you react and what you will do. Five unique scenarios, each divided into an apocalypse and a post-apocalypse, invite you to experience the alien assault again and again. Every game of the Alien Invasion extends the same invitation to you, the chance to play yourself in the midst of the apocalypse. Rather than playing a legendary warrior or a mighty wizard, you play an abstracted version of your real-life persona, abruptly cast into the tumult and chaos inherent to the apocalypse. During the game, you'll not only use your skills and abilities, but your adventure begins in your hometown. You may turn on your television and hear news of abductions only to see a saucer landing down the street from your house. You may be arrested by police under the leadership of a strange reptilian figure. And you may head to your local grocery store hoping there's still something left for you to loot. As you play, you can use your knowledge of familiar streets and landmarks to evade alien hunters or plot resistance strikes against your extraterrestrial oppressors. 
The different scenarios within the Alien Invasion book share a common theme, but the variations within that particular theme can be as different from each other as the different books of the end of the world line. With five distinct scenarios, Alien Invasion may challenge you to fight creatures that assume the shape of your friends and loved ones, aliens that ruled the Earth behind the scenes for centuries, or even giant ants from outer space. Ah, the movie Them. I can never resist watching that. I love classic sci-fi like that. Uh, in December, Tim Cox, the writer for Alien Invasion, shared a designer diary in which he talked about one of his favorite scenarios in the book, The War Between the Worlds Scenario. Each scenario is split into two parts, an apocalypse and post-apocalypse at the onset of the game. You're caught in the throes of the apocalypse as extraterrestrials suddenly attack our planet and our established way of life comes crashing down. Sooner or later, however, if you survive, a new normal begins to emerge. Earth is most likely unrecognizable in the post-apocalypse. You may join the resistance movement fighting our intergalactic overlords or adapt to life in a world filled with gigantic ant-like creatures. No matter which scenario you play, and no matter what choices you make, you can be sure that Earth will never be the same. And this is from FantasyFlightGames.com. Yep. I can't remember. I was at a store. I want to say I was at Chimera Games in Appleton. I saw the zombie first... Zombie Apocalypse? Yeah, I think I saw Zombie Apocalypse. And uh, I was so intrigued, especially when I, I first read the story that they were coming out with this line, that I thought it was really neat that they just kind of grabbed on to the five biggest tropes of the end of the world yeah. and were actually creating a game system around it. What do you guys know or have heard about this particular game system? I have a group of friends who actually play, uh, they've been playing the zombie apocalypse one. Okay. They get a kick out of the fact that it's, uh, some of them get a kick out of the fact that it's, using, like, abstract versions of yourself because they are, amongst them, you have someone who is a doctor in real life, and his wife is originally from Israel, and she was a Krav Maga instructor in the Israeli <laughs> military. So they've, they've got, like, they've got the medicine down, and they've got that down, and then another guy they play with is currently a cop. So oh, okay, because uh, when they started playing it, they normally play at the cop's house. But uh, the guy who was running the game specifically said he didn't want to play it there because when it happens, you can grab what's right by you, and that's what you have for starting equipment. And he's got, like, a mini arsenal. So he's like, I don't want them starting out with, like, you know, four shotguns and about a dozen handguns and, you know, all that. And he goes, no, they're going to start at someone else's house. And if they if they make it over there, fine. But they're going to start at my house where the most violent thing I have, you know, is a decorative sword on the wall. So... That's that's really funny because some some of the people who have talked to about that game have have had the opposite like complaint like you know I'm an IT guy who doesn't go out into the sun and I play with you know a bunch of people who you know we're gonna get chased down by zombies in the first two minutes so why would we want to make idealized versions of ourselves because we're the guys in the in the zombie movie that get eaten right away. So they would want to make uh, a group that's more like the, the real-life group where you've got the doctor, the cop, the Krav Maga instructor, maybe, a, I don't know, a crack helicopter pilot, you know, maybe throw some of those in there. But I, uh, my experience, I've not played the game, but I've, uh, I have a friend who, who bought the zombie, the zombie one, and it's interesting to me that, that the system is a system that 
focuses on the more modern design of, of kind of emulating fiction rather than trying to establish a baseline of reality. And I think that works the best for a game like this where you're playing fictionalized versions of yourselves. I mean, and, and that's something that, that's happening in wider media. I mean, you see movies like This is the End or uh, Zombieland where you see, like, they're regular people, but then you're like, oh, it's Bill Murray after the apocalypse, you know, and, and they and they kind of have that, those pieces as well, too. Like, I remember a long time ago, I f- read a game where you played, like, a time traveler, and the, the shit was that you were playing yourself, and it had pages and pages of rules devoted to figure out what your stats were. So, like, for the what I remember was, like, for your... To figure out your strength score, you had to pick up, like, a jug of milk or, like, a jug of water, like a gallon jug, and hold it for X amount of minutes or seconds, like, out straight in front of you, and the longer you could hold it, the higher your strength stat was. And I feel like doing it that way would cause way more arguments between the group of, like, oh, no, I'm way stronger than you are and have, you know, we were going to make characters for this game, but we ended up just having arm wrestling contests and doing wind sprints because we got into arguments over who's, like, stronger than what person. What really interests me about the, the games, though, are I feel like the most underrepresented premises are the ones that are coming out later. Like, this, the Alien Invasion one is coming out now, um, and then I think the next one is the Terminator one, basically. Like uh, a War, yeah, War of the Revol- Machines. Revolt of the in. Machines, yep. It seems like you can get zombies, and I think the second one was like Cthulhu or like Angels. Wrath of the Gods, yeah. Yep. Right. Like, I feel like those are pretty well represented, but the, the, the last two are the ones that I'm really interested in seeing what they do because I don't think that there are a lot of RPGs that really do that style of sure. game, and so like if I were going to choose to run one of those games, it'd probably be one of those latter two because, well, e- and and even Alien uh, Invasion is kind of coming into vogue again with the new um, Independence Day movie and uh, that like Falling Skies, I think it's called on TNT yep. with Noah Hawley, yeah. and you're you're kind of seeing that re-enter the public consciousness. And, and once those ideas enter the public consciousness, that's when they kind of filter back into gaming again because that's when game designers go and see those movies and go, oh, yeah, hey, I should do one of those. That that would be cool. Let's do one of those. Yeah, I was thinking about this when I, when I was looking through the story, and it kind of reminded me, uh, and I've never played this system. Well, no, I take that back. I did play the system. I think we played it for about a month, and that system was called Trauma, and that's where you, as a group created the character for a particular person. Basically, you had everybody else in the group create your character, and then you had an opportunity to look over what everybody created as, because you can't be objective necessarily about yourself. Right. So everybody got together and wrote down the qualities, what they thought your strengths should be, and then at the end of it, called you into the room, and then you got to go over and ask, okay, well, what about this? Oh, you didn't know this about me, and you could alter the sheet, and then you move on to the next person. And then you are playing the best representation of yourself. You need to be playing with people that don't have egos <laughs> to do something like that. So, you know, when I read this, it, it kind of reminded me of, of playing that, because you talk about you playing basically yourself, so... It's a neat concept, and I I would love to to try any one of these particular scenarios. So, Glenn, do you carry this, or who carries it in the Milwaukee area, the close by? 
Oh, you do? Okay. Okay, yep. cool. We have all three currently in stock. Nice. Very nice. I uh, wanted to briefly talk about some of the other shows that Galactic Netcast has available. I mentioned that uh, I do some work on a show called The Alien Invasion and The Sci-Fi Geeks Club. And we have other shows called Weird World Weekly. I can barely say it, but it's a fun show. It's a short one, too. It's about 15 to 20 minutes. And they talk about conspiracy theories, urban myths, and things like that, and just kind of give a brief history of where something may have come from or how it was spread or a background of a thing and kind of give a good brief summary and uh, a bit of a talk about a particular subject and it's pretty interesting and then we have a newer show called the podcast of terror and a recently released show I don't want to forget this which is exploring the X-Files with a father and son watching the X-Files. The father, of course, saw X-Files when it came out in the 90s, and his son has never seen it. So they do the show together and go over episodes. They're starting with the new series right now, and uh, they're going to go back and go through the nine seasons of the original of uh, X-Files. So you can check those out at gncasts.com and find a show that fits in your particular type of interest. So... There you go. Now, our Kickstarter spotlight. Last week, we talked about Tiny Epic Western. And with five days to go, they uh, originally were looking for uh, $15,000 to meet their goal. They are currently at 361519 <laughs> I got on board on this one, Glenn. Did you get on board with that? Not yet, but I've got my reminder set, so I'll probably end up backing it tonight. Okay. (laughs) Five days to go as of us recording this. And uh, just as a reminder about what this is about, uh, it's poker meets worker placement in this artfully crafted 30-minute board game for one to four players. Tiny box, epic gameplay every time. And essentially, you have uh, two, four, six different locations. You are working to build your empire in a small western town and basically play poker to check your success uh, on different types of activities that you're looking to do in the game. Let's see, at 361,000... Oh, they have one... (laughs) They have one stretch goal left to go. Now that they've broken the $300,000 mark, they now have the official solo play rules that they'll have available. Let's see. They have the upgraded poker chip. Instead of just being the plastic chip, it's going to be a front and back screen-printed, high-quality plastic chip. Double-sided bosses. They've got more buildings that you can uh, interact with and uh, help to build your little empire, as it were. Better boxes, better card quality, screen-printed tokens. This game really, really took off, and and that's great. So I'm really looking forward to to getting this. And they do have deluxe add-ons. If you got it at a certain level and there's kind of an a la carte thing that you would like for your particular copy that you're receiving, you can a la carte those too for... Uh, different amounts, and we'll have the link in the show notes for you to be able to take a look at this and see more on this. But uh, I ended up uh, 
backing it too. I, I think those guys, it's a uh, Gamelin. They really have like a, a loyal audience that, like, as soon as they put something up, run after it because I think they make good games. Because I played their last one, which was Tiny Epic Galaxies. Okay. Um, yep. And that was a lot of fun. And I, I think a lot of people have that thing happen because a, a lot of people that I know played the game before that and ended up backing Tiny Epic Galaxies and, you know, it, it kind of rolls forward and rolls forward as more and more people play these games and enjoy them. They're like, oh, bring another one? Okay, I'll pick that one up too. So. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling that from this point on I will probably be getting all of the Gameland games because this just... The overall concept, and, and I would invite you guys to take a look at this on kickstarter.com and uh, and read everything about it because the, the gameplay, 30 to 45 minutes for this game and how they design the cards, everything is just seems really unique. And from what I read, it just I've never heard of a game like this and it just really caught my interest. So... I had to get on board. There was no way. I think I actually backed this while we were doing the show. <laughs> you did last week, yeah. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> so there you go. Tiny Epic Western is a go. Like I said, five days for you to get on board, and I hopped in at the $24 level, and with all the stretch goals that they've gotten through, uh, you're going to get a, a hell of a game. Its uh, estimated delivery is September of 2016, and the shipping is incredibly reasonable. Worldwide, $12 U.S. Canada, 9 and if you are within the U.S., it is only $2. So $26 gets you a deluxe copy of this game, and for what you get, that's a steal. Because I have a feeling that once it goes to retail, you're going to see it probably... I'm going to guess here, uh, maybe double. Is that has Epic uh, Epic Galaxies hit and re- hit retail? Uh yeah, Epic Galaxies is. I have it at the store. Well, actually, I have. Let's I see. think I think it's more of a you don't get the the deluxe content. Yeah. Okay. If you don't get it now, because I've been quietly probing online to try and find a, a deluxe Kickstarter version of of Galaxies, sure. and. It is like people are trying to flip it for about double if you want all the stuff. So sure, okay. Yeah, retail wise, the the tiny ones can go for about thirty two. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that for what you get, I mean, that's pretty freaking reasonable. I would gladly go back and and get some of these other games after I play Tiny Epic Western. So, anyways, enough about that. Let's look to the future, Glenn. When we were having lunch, you asked me, "Hey, did you see this game?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's ridiculous." What is that game, Glenn? <laughs> it is Pugmire. Yay! <laughs> Which I know Rob is back as well. It shows right on my screen here. Rob Wheeler is back. Um, Pugmire is a fantasy tabletop RPG. What drew me to this initially, aside from just the fact that it has the word pug in it, and I love pugs, was when I read the line, think Lord of the Rings meets Planet of the Apes, but with dogs. <laughs> I'm like, I'm... Okay, I I am sold. The setting is basically is Pugmire is the biggest kingdom in the world in which dogs have built a new society. They live in the ashes of our world far in the future, seeking adventure and redemption. And I also love that they have the Code of Man, which are basically like their, their seven rules that they live by, which is be a good dog, obey the master, fight only those who endanger you, 
protect your home, be loyal to those that are true, protect all from the unseen, and fetch what has been left behind. <laughs> the Code of Man is very important as it teaches us that we all need to be good dogs in the eyes of the old ones. It, it looks really cool. The artwork looks great, too. Yeah. And just, I like things that, you know, are familiar, but just different enough, which is, you know, this is that just different enough. I've seen plenty of things with, you know, obviously apes, you know, I've had their, their day, and you've got cat people and everything Japan has ever made, but you don't see dogs in a lot of stuff, you know, and dogs are the vastly superior animal to everything on the planet, so... Um, <laughs> But they were looking for $15,000 to bring this to life. And I think they're going to squeak by. They have 36 days to go, and they're currently at $94,260. I can't remember seeing where this hit on the Internet, but it exploded. Uh, and rightfully so, because the concept, it, it's like one of those things, it's so simple, it's brilliant. And I'm surprised that we haven't really seen something, like, or at least I can't recall anything like this. Uh, especially as a as a tabletop game, uh, yeah. it, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Well, and the guy who who's running the Kickstarter, Richard Thomas. I mean, he's no stranger to Kickstarter. I mean, he brought the Changeling Kickstarter to us. Oh, from the uh, Onyx Path. Oh God, yeah, the Onyx, Onyx Path, Path people are brilliant. Out. I mean, all the Darkness, uh, Deluxe Wraith. So yeah, I mean, there's always this question of you know, well, it's funded, it's gonna be delivered. I think with the pedigree this one has, you're gonna see delivery of this. Uh, these are people who have released stuff before and kind of know what they're doing. And you can get to $20 where you can actually get a copy of the PDF of Pugmire. If you go 40 you actually get a physical copy of the book as well. You keep going up at 55 Oh, and I'm sorry, I have to. It's, at 20 you're a Pugmire puppy. At 40 you're a good dog. At 55 you're a good sitting dog. And then you get a copy of the book, copy of the PDF. You get the Pugmire Game Master screen. Uh, if you go up to 75, you're a good dog sitting with bones, everything you need to play, which covers the book, the PDF, the Game Master screen, a set of Pugmire dice, and a full set of 13 Pugmire breed and calling pins as described in the add-on section. And you can keep going up. I mean, you know, $80, you get two copies of the book and the PDF and $100 and all the way up to their big pledges, which a lot of them are gone already. But like $200, you be a Pugmire founder, you get a book, a PDF, and the city of Pugmire is still being created. You can add a location named by you to the city. That is amazing. Some of their, oh. their big level ones are basically immortalize your dog in the book yes. as yes. the <laughs> And I, I know quite a few people who were like, hmm, you know what? It's worth it. Totally worth it. We want our dog to be forever remembered in, in oh. the book. At $375, beautiful kitty. Your mm -hmm. cat will be used as a model for a character in Pugmire or in an upcoming Pugmire project. You must provide photographic reference for the artist. We'll contact you with details. One of the rumored stretch goals is that if they do well enough that they will produce a companion RPG for the Monarchies of Mao, which are the uplifted cats that are sort of the rivals to the dogs of Pugmire. And as, as a big old cat lady, I am totally on board for that. Um, <laughs> and there are a lot of people who 
have backed the Kickstarter, like me, who are basically like, yeah, I like cats more, but this is a great idea, and if you do a cat book, call me. I'm here. Let's we'll, we'll do it. I, I, we're we're totally on board here. Oh, I. I I also uh, Eddie Webb is the is the designer behind the game and and I've worked with Eddie on a lot of projects and he's not only a great designer and a great guy but you can tell the passion that he has for this product and for this world and I think that's one of the reasons why the Kickstarter is doing so well because he's run this game at several conventions uh, and you know people chase him down trying to to get him to run this game and he's happy to do it uh, because you know this has been a uh, I hesitate to use the term pet project but something <laughs> that you can have for you know two or three years at this point I don't know the, the specific number and the, the success of it, like, uh, last, I think it was Friday night, uh, it was featured on The Nerdist. Okay. Um, and watching that spread through kind of the social media feed, people going, <gasps> you made it to The Nerdist, oh my god, has been the surest sign yet. Oh, so many people, like you said, they grab onto this idea and they go, and they go yeah, yeah, I want to play a dog that, that wields a sword. Are you kidding me? Let's do it. And it's it's really amazing to see it take off like it has. You know, to me, one of the best ways to tell if somebody, A, has passion for the project that they're trying to get backed, B, have done a good job, is by looking at the page that they put together. And if you go to Kickstarter and find the Pugmire page and the way that everything is structured, it's really, really well done. You have a conversation between two dogs... <laughs> Yeah. With a, a different font for the two different dogs, as they're you know, as it's kind of a Q and A to give you a little insight into the game. The scroll for the code of man that you get to see for the seven parts of the code of man. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it, you look at this just by this part of the marketing alone, and you know that there's been a lot of thought, care, love given to this project, and you are not going to get a piece of, uh, of haphazard slapdash stuff. This is going to be good. Uh, I'm really wishing that I had like $560 to donate to this because I could get one of my cats immortalized in the world of Pugmire. Although I kind of have a feeling that Furlock Holmes or Irene Catler aren't going to fit too well in the naming, <laughs> naming scheme. Uh, <laughs> in this particular world, but uh, a boy can dream. All right, again, that game is Pugmire Fantasy Tabletop RPG by Richard Thomas, and yeah, this is definitely, this is a goal. <laughs> They've more than tripled their original pledge goal, so, and this is going to be delivered in January of 2017, well, the estimated delivery of January 2017. Yeah, I'm I'm really really pumped for that. Okay, cool. You've heard his voice repeatedly, and uh, <laughs> uh, now we want to actually talk with Rob Wheeland here and talk about uh, the projects that he's worked on. You know, we talked about earlier that he's worked on. Oh gosh, the, the just the names of the games alone for the few that we mentioned: Shadowrun, Star Wars Saga, Firefly, Fate. And I know that you've done a lot more than that. So it's really wonderful to to have you on the show, Rob. And we, we have a number of questions for you. Good. I will <laughs> answer them in an, either an entertaining or a very quick manner. 
Ah, you know, we saw uh, the words Arthurian next to giant robot battles in space. And what can you tell us about your project, Fate Camelot Trigger? Camelot Trigger was one of the first stretch goals that I did for the Fate Core Kickstarter. When they launched Fate Core, they brought together a bunch of authors and did stretch goals as, okay, and here's another setting, and here's another setting, and here's another setting. And when these Kickstarters come up, I usually end up pitching two or three ideas at the people who want to hire me. And I pitch Camelot Trigger and and with a couple of other ones. And the only reply email I got back from Fred Hicks was, ooh, Camelot Trigger. And that's because it, you said this a little bit about Pugmire. It was that same idea of this is the Arthurian mythos combined with giant stompy robots. <laughs> and Fred and I thought, how has nobody ever done this before? Like, how did nobody come up with this idea? And there were a few things that took inspiration from Arthurian myth. And I know, like, I remember there was a an amazing engine game from, like, the late, 80s that was like King Arthur in the future, but that was more like Camelot 3000, and this was more like, okay, we want to have the knights, and we want to have the giant robot armor, so that way they can, you know, clash in the big anime-style robot battles. So that was the starting piece, and then I wanted uh, more of a element of intrigue and, and kind of a, a dash of Game of Thrones because when developing a fake core setting they recommend having uh, an immediate threat and then kind of a looming threat that you're supposed to be both be dealing with. So the looming threat was an AI called Morgana that uh, had invaded Earth and was enslaving the, you know, the population of the inner planets that Arthur rises up and casts off from Earth. So they even pushed back, and Arthur knows that they're out there. They haven't made a big move, so they're looming, and you know your knights will probably clash with them in skirmishes, and you know figure out what their ultimate plan is. But the immediate threat is that now that Arthur has cast off the AI who are called the Emergent, he's got to try and reunite all of the different baronies on all the different planets in the solar system, so that when uh, Morgana makes her, her move back to try and retake Earth and subjugate humanity once and for all. They're all fighting underneath Arthur's banner, and that's not a very easy thing to do because you've got to, you know, cut those deals with petty barons and, you know, oh, if you do this for me, I'll, I'll serve under Arthur, or you claim to be this great king, but I don't believe you, but if you do this thing for me, then maybe we'll think about it. And so you've got kind of those intrigue elements and maybe some of the barons are actually working for Morgana. And, and so there's a lot going on here for players outside of the big Smashy mechs, but it was also an opportunity to do uh, mech rules for Fate, which uh, I know a lot of people have used to do other giant robot genres like Transformers or um, Battletech. And like Pacific Rim are the three ones that, I, that that I've seen people hack the rules specifically out of it and be like, "Are these good?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's awesome. I love seeing people pull out my stuff and use it for their own purposes. Like that's that's really neat to see." Yeah, that really speaks to the level of of thought and everything that you put into it, and also 
you know, having somebody take something that you love and adapt it into something else, and that, that's got to be a really good feeling. It's very nice. It can be very difficult as a game designer or even just as a creative when you're here, you know, typing and, and, and working on stuff and, you know, emailing it off to the developer and not seeing it for months or even years and getting that feedback and, and seeing people who are like, no, I played that. It was awesome. I, I, I read that book. That's great. It, it really helps on those days when you're like, what am I doing? Uh, why didn't I get uh, a regular job? Why am I not? Why am I not uh, a sales guy? What am I? What, why did I decide that I needed to, you know, make up things for a living? And that's one of the reasons why I like going to conventions because you, you get a lot of that good feedback in a short, concentrated burst, as opposed to waiting for an email to come out of nowhere and one day and be like, oh, they liked my game. That's nice. It's a lot nicer to meet people at shows and have them sit at your table and, you know, play your game and, and tell you that they like it right there. Sure. And it's got to be hard to kind of develop in a vacuum, as it were. You know, you've, you've got the ideas and you put them down and, yeah, I can see you just kind of hoping that you get that feedback to know that, you know, you're definitely on the right path. You know, I'm assuming that you're working with a team of people as well and you can bounce that off, but you're not making it for yourself and the people on the team. You're making it for people to actually play. A good developer will work with you and kind of shepherd your ideas and, and offer feedback and go, okay, let's do this or let's do that. You tend to develop... Uh, an idea, like, it, it's very easy for first-time writers, and I know we'll talk about a little bit this later on, to, like, clutch onto that one idea and, you know, never let it go. And a good developer can kind of quietly pry your fingers off of it and go, okay, that there's some good in there, but why don't we try this way? And you're not necessarily even knowing it until you're like, wait, that's a better idea. Okay, we're going to go with that. Let's do that. So, and as far as, you know, pitching ideas, like, even the ideas that don't get made right away, they're still there, and they're still useful, and there's still pieces there that eventually will turn up in other media. Uh, I, one of the games that I worked on as a stretch, as another sort of world developer, stretch goal writer, uh, was uh, Robin Laws' Hillfolk, and I ended up doing two worlds for that, but there were a couple other worlds that I pitched that, they didn't go for, but those have, those are pieces that I've used in other things as well, or research that I've done that, hey, I can use the stuff from here. Like you, The longer that you develop this, you realize that even if an idea isn't necessarily good right now, that doesn't mean that it won't be good in five years, because tastes change, popular ideas change, and... And and that's the easiest way to kind of help you get over that, like, but they didn't like the thing that I wanted to do. It's okay, well, they didn't like it now. Put it away, and maybe in two or three years, there'll be a different venue that that idea will be a, a much better fit. Uh, looking at some of the other things that you've worked on, we've had the good fortune to talk to Kenneth Height about the Dracula dossier for uh, Knight's Black Agents. Uh, we got had a chance to talk to Matthew McFarland uh, of Chill, and God, we really were trying to get somebody from Onyx Path to talk about the classic, the, the kind of the 2.0 <clears throat> stuff for uh, Vampire the Masquerade. I, I can kind of do that. I, I have done some work for them. 
Okay. And it's really kind of cool to see that you've, you know, and we talked about Firefly and Star Wars, and you've had that good opportunity as a freelancer to be able to work with all of these different settings and systems and properties. What would you say is has been your favorite to date? I know it's probably hard to, to play favorites, but if you were to, if you could say <laughs> the one that, and, and it could be for any reason. You know whether it's how much you loved a particular the source material, or you had an idea that just really stuck, and you felt that it just really drove things home. Well, I I think I'm gonna narrow it to two. Sorry, okay. uh, and that's um, okay. And I will also say, as an honorable mention, uh, working on the stuff that I created from whole cloth is always a ton of fun and very exciting. And I'm very honored that I've, I've had an opportunity because I've worked on so many different things to find the right places for things like Camelot trigger and save game to land. And, and those, those are always the most exciting to see your one name on this thing. That's all you. And that's, that sure. is a, a, an amazing feeling. Having said that, Working on properties that I was a huge fan of when I was just starting out and really just getting into the hobby is always an exciting experience. I didn't come into RPGs through D&D like a lot of people did. Um, the first game that I played a lot of was Shadowrun. Okay, sure. I mean, it's a killer premise, and it immediately latches on to the 10-year-old and anybody when you're like, it's dragons with machine guns. Yeah, yeah. And 99% <laughs> of the people you say that to are like, that is awesome. What do we do? So being able to play in that world has been fantastic, and it's also one of the first media properties that when I go to conventions and talk to people, you know, it's easy to walk up and go, oh, I'm a writer and I do this stuff, and people kind of go, yeah, that's great, pal, whatever. And then you say, but I've worked on Shadowrun, and then they stop and go, oh, I know that name. Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. You, you're not just some guy. Okay, that's great. And then over the past couple of years, being able to work on, well, I guess the past year, uh, being able to do work uh, for Onyx Path and work on Vampire 20th, uh, anniversary edition was very exciting because that was Vampire was the first RPG that showed me that there was more to it than just killing stuff or, or action sequences and that was the first group that I ran with where I felt like I was really telling stories and getting characters and getting people really wrapped up in the story and because of that being able to work on the 20th anniversary editions uh, Lord of the Clan book was really exciting. Not only for that reason, but because I got to do the section for my favorite clan, which was the Malkavians. Ah, um, yes. And it was fun to do, but it was also a challenge because a lot of the other clan books, both the original and the revised edition, both devoted a ton of space to don't be this kind of player when it came to Malkavians. Sure, like, don't yeah. be the fish malk, don't be the guy, and I wanted to make sure to go the other route and say, do be this kind of player. Follow these ideas rather than castigate and say no, 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 to come around and say, okay, this is the type of character that you should play, and this is, these are interesting things to do with this. And also talk about Malkavians in the sense that 
you know, mental illness is something that should be treated carefully. So with the Malkavians, it, it became kind of a section on, well, they're not crazy. They're, they're broken. And a lot of people yeah. confuse the two. But when your portrayal, you should know the difference and make sure to lean towards this rather than this. And so it, it, I got to do that section, and I got to do the anti-tribute section in the plan book, which was another challenge because when I was playing Vampire, I always kind of saw the, the anti-tribute as the, like, well, they're the evil goatee versions of the clans. Yeah. They're just, whatever the regular clan does, they do the opposite because bizarro. Um, <laughs> and it was interesting to go through the materials that had come out throughout the years and kind of pull the pieces that let me give the anti-tribute a bit more of a specific identity outside of that because all the stuff was in there. It just was kind of threaded out throughout books and books and books and books and books. And books, and books. So I, I think that right now is probably my the most exciting experience that I've had because that's a game that was so influential to me and getting a chance to write for it is something that, you know, if I went back to tell 10-year-old me that, he would be so excited. Yeah, I, you know, to me, and I started playing Iron Crown Enterprises Role Master and Space Master, and then I moved into D&D, and then I moved into Vampire, and it was like, at that point of playing that, the concept of consequences for actions, playing, not necessarily playing the monster, but playing somebody who has to try to convince themselves that they're not monsters, depending on how you play it, it just like became multifaceted. And that, yeah, to me, that just really kind of opened things up. And yeah, there is a special place in my heart uh, for Vampire. And when I was... Uh, I've, I've talked about this in the past. I'm kind of finishing up some details for something. I really still love that whole classic Vampire setting. And I managed to pick up the 2.0 version of uh, Hunters Hunted. And I was really pumped for that. And so just seeing that Onyx Path is keeping that alive and updating, you know, I think the hardest part was like updating the technology. You know, these books were mostly put out, the first round of stuff was put out in the 90s and then mm -hmm. looking at Hunters Hunted, I'm trying to do something more contemporary and it's like, oh, I need stats for a smartphone and you know, <laughs> just trying to... I know they, 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 they tackled some of that in the Anarchs book because the Anarchs are kind of the more... You know, because they're younger, they tend to not be like, "What is a smartphone? I don't know." And so they, they talked a little bit about that about it there. But at the same time, you see a lot of the the, the love that people put into the the anniversary stuff, like in Lore of the Clans. Uh, and I didn't even realize this until the author pointed it out to me. But he put in two characters from the old Milwaukee by Night book that came <laughs> out many, yeah. many, many. Years ago, and and that was one of the first things that hooked me into the vampire was wait they wrote a book about my city I can have vampires in my hometown that's amazing and that they're in that the same book in the like kindred note section at the end you know I, I'm like that's perfect because they remember those characters and I I even told them I was like I ran those guys in my game and I'm glad that they're still around that's amazing so. Yeah, I just just put that in my wish list on uh, Drive Through RPG. So, 
I, I just uh, I, I love that system so much, so much. Speaking of of stuff, and you're freelancing, that you've kind of touched on it on certain things that you've said, some of the pros and cons of freelancing. What what would you say if somebody w- were to come up to you and say, "Hey, Rob, I'm kind of interested in getting into freelancing." What are some of the pitfalls and what are some of the, the great rewards of freelancing? The joke that I share with a, a couple of the other freelancers is this is always the crushing dream segment of the evening. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> it sounds like, like it's trite, but it's not. And the, the first rule is if you want to be a writer, you have to write. Sure. And there are a lot of different definitions of what a writer is and what a writer isn't, and some get very picky about, oh, well, you only write this specific type of thing, or if you write this, you're not really a writer. And my definition is you're really a writer when you keep writing after it stops being fun. Sure. It's very easy in that first blush, I've got a great idea, let's put words down, hey! And then you get to a point where you either have to continue and it stops being easy, or you stop it and then go and do something else. And that's really a sign of of whether or not you might have the discipline to be a freelancer. I know one of the first pieces of advice that I got when I first started was, paraphrased, uh, it's been attributed to a variety of different writers, it's they don't want it good, they want it Wednesday. And (laughs) how that plays out is... Deadlines are there for a reason. Deadlines are important. And you should try to hit those deadlines as much as possible because most developers and most editors will take something that is okay but on time over great but three weeks late. Yeah. So so step one, I think, is, is sort of that professionalism. I think step two is marketing yourself and getting out there and making sure that people are aware that you're writing and, and, and know your stuff. Like, for, for people who don't necessarily have a wide variety of, of credits, I recommend starting a blog or starting a Tumblr or starting something where you can put out content that people are going to see. Share it on whatever gaming um, communities that you belong to and get people to look at it. And because that's going to build your confidence, that's also going to push you to do better and to to improve yourself because once you know you have an audience, you tend to start writing for that audience. And nowadays, especially, it's, it's a lot easier because so many companies have open content and creative licenses. And, and I mean, I'm sure you guys probably talked about the Dungeon Masters Guild that opened up a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, where you can now do open 5e content and put it on the web and put it on their website. And there are, and DriveThruRPG is another place where you can do that stuff. And, and that might be a second or a third step after once you've, you know, got like a presence to, to sort of filter people into that. But it's an example of how you can get your stuff out there on your own and you don't have to wait for a publisher and you don't have to wait for a gatekeeper. If you want to start working in those areas, that's uh, when you need to start, you know, talking to people at conventions and networking and, and sharing your your work and and making sure that people are there and making contact with them. Be polite. Be a fan. Professionalism, I think, also includes an element of politeness because you're maybe shocked to discover that if you spent a 
you know, a couple of blog posts blasting a company because they didn't do uh, a book the way that you wanted uh, them to do it, uh, and then you turn around and go, oh, you guys have an open call. Are you looking for writers? They're going to tell you no. And sure. it's because you spent time on the Internet complaining about them. And there are ways to get around that. I think you can – there are some people who kind of thrive on that confrontational thing, but it never makes it easier. It always makes it harder. Like if you're the type of person who who's expressed those types of opinions, you almost have to be twice or three times as good to justify – you know, whatever sort of negative baggage that yeah. you might be carrying. So it kind of makes sense to, you know, if you're thinking about doing that, make sure that if you express an opinion that it's usually that it's something that isn't going to necessarily be remembered poorly. And if you want to work for a company, play nice with them, talk with them. And uh, it seems obvious, but I, I know quite a few authors who don't do that, and then they turn around and they're shocked that they don't get hired, and, and you're like, well, there's a reason. But at uh, the same time, even if you... Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, as a, as a freelancer, your reputation has to be like... It's like a currency. Mm-hmm. So you need... If you're the kind of person who writes and meets deadlines and is polite you're more apt to get more gigs. That's true. You want people who are going to be on time and people who aren't going to wrestle with, you know, your editors and your developers over their content. Sure. Um, I mean, I feel like my job is to present ideas, and if those ideas aren't the ones they want, fine. We throw them on the pile, and we make new ones, and we keep throwing ideas up until something clicks and something with the developer that they want to work on and that we can work on together. Because it is a collaborative process. Because you're dealing with a developer. You're dealing with an editor. You're, you might even be dealing with layout people, depending on the, the company that you're working for. And you want to make sure that you're on the same page with all of those people as much as possible because you don't want there to be that last-minute uh, flip-back of, well, what do you mean you changed it? Who changed it? I, nobody authorized this. So, polite, professional, I feel like there's a third P that, uh, well, I guess persistence would probably be the last one, which is figure out what your process is. Some writers write X words every day and, you know, chunk it up and grind it up that way. Other writers kind of go in big binges and, you know, thrive on that 2 a.m., Got to, my paper is due at 8 a.m. college pressure thing. And the, the sooner you figure out what your process is, the better off you'll be. And if, as long as it works for you, that's what matters. Because I know I try to, to chunk things out as much as possible, but I also do uh, sometimes you know, leave stuff off to the end. And, and a parcel out into larger chunks, but it, I, it usually stays within manageable pieces. So, like, I, I kind of start out budgeting very small pieces, and then, so even if it balloons to a larger word count by the end, it's still within what I'm comfortable doing. Like, one of the first assignments that I had as a professional uh, was for 7th C, and by that time, it had morphed into uh, Swashbuckling Adventures, and that was kind of the, like, the D20 version of the game. And that was when they were dual-statting books so that they had the old 7C rules and the D20 version of the rules. And because I had never done anything professional before, I blew it off. And it, it, and it turned into 
a project where I, I wrote it over a weekend and I wrote, you know, like, gosh, I, I want to say I wrote like 20,000 words in like three days. Oh, and, wow. And that's impressive. And I almost died. Like, I had to literally take the next two days off of, work, of my day job because I was so brain fried and tired because I stayed up for 24 hours cranking this out. And that's because I learned the behavior in college. Oh, well, I can blow this off to the last minute, no problem. And, and you can't do that because that's going to kill you. So you need to figure out what your process is. And even if it's not orthodox, uh, you need to stick to it. I've been freelancing full-time for about a year and a half now, and I'm still kind of rediscovering what my new process is because for the longest time, because I you know, worked a day job and then freelanced on nights and weekends, it was like, okay, well, I you know work till 5, and then I come home, I get dinner, and then I write until you know, 10 you know, when I have a gig due. Or I take a day off during the weekday, but then I work something on the weekend. And as a full-time freelancer, you don't have that daily regiment assigned to you anymore. So there's a, an additional piece of self-discipline there because you don't go, well, I, if you get up and you, uh, at 2.30 in the morning and you have a day job and you're like, oh, I just figured out what happens to the count, you can go, well, I put that away because I have to get up at 7 to, to get to the office. But if you're a full-time freelancer, you tend to go, all right, well, I guess I'm up at 3 a.m. talking about what happened to the count, and then you kind of have to adjust your schedule accordingly. And, you know, I recently had a daughter, and I, it's another reset of the process because sure. now it's like, okay, well, there's another piece that I have to factor back in. And so far it's been working. You know, who knows how it will continue to work, but I also know that a lot of freelancers do kind of have a, a setup with their partners where the partner works a, um, a full-time job and that way they get like benefits and all the like, you know, sure, yeah. and kind of has the steady backstop and then the freelancer is more able to have the highs and lows of, I'm so busy, nothing's going on in work row. And it, it, it sort of helps even out those pits and valleys, the peaks yeah. and valleys. Uh, you know, I you mentioned just a a little bit, and I wanted to kind of get make sure I got clarification. You have the different strata. You have the freelancers, you have the developer, and you have the editor. We know what 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 the freelancer does based on on what you've laid out here. The developer you touched on a little bit, but what is their like? Uh, let's say uh, somebody who's a developer for Vampire the Masquerade 2.0. What is a developer's job? The developer is there to make sure that whatever writer's ideas are there are are fit there for the property. So, like, I, I did some development for Firefly. I, I developed the, um, the digital line of adventures uh, called Echoes of War um, for that line. So I can talk, I can, I can frame it in those terms because that's my experience. And, and honestly, going into that position, there, were, there is an entirely different skill set than what I was expecting. Like, as a freelancer, it you tend to hit your word count, send the thing in, they send you the changes back, you either make them or you, you know, fight them, you send everything back, and then they say, okay, good, well, we'll get your check when we get your check, we'll see you then, and your copy will be in the mail. Whereas the developer, you're there to make sure that what the writer sends you fits the 
kind of the, the goals of the document, fits the, the setting, fits the, the, the property. So, like, for Firefly, for example, you know, if, if a writer sent me a thing where, okay, we're going to do rules for how to play a reaver, it would be like, mm, no, we don't want to do those. Let's try something else. Or even if it was an idea that was close, because everybody has a different vision of how they see a particular property in a particular world. So the developer is there to kind of make sure that all of those visions come together in something that's vaguely coherent. And in theory, to make good ideas great ideas by saying, okay, so not necessarily always refusing them, but also suggesting enhancements and add-ons and other pieces. So like taking in an adventure that's one of the things that I often did as the developer for Echoes of War was uh, taking an adventure that was fairly strictly linear and went from A to B to C to D and trying to add in ways so that you could instead maybe go from A to C to B to D or A to D or, you know, and, and still have a good night or two of play out of it rather than, well, you have to go here and do this thing, and you have to go here and do this thing, and you have to go here and do this specific thing, because players don't play that way. They're always running around the edges and trying to go around and, 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 and figure things out, and that's that's been from the beginning of the hobby. So yeah. for Echoes of War, uh, it was important to me to try to structure those pieces like acts that could be plugged in in different ways rather than, well, first there's a fight, then there's a, a ship chase, then there's another fight, and then the crew wins something. And by laying out a lot of information and a lot of backdrop for each adventure, uh, that's where the development process comes in, because then you go back to the author and you're like, okay, I like more information about this casino that this heist is going on at. Because if you give the GM more information about casino, when the players decide that they want to do a heist a different way, they have the information to react against what the players want. So developers are there to kind of expand the ideas that the authors have and basically give direct feedback right away on the ideas that the authors send off when they send off their initial pitches or even when they send in the manuscript. Okay, so essentially Shepard collaborate spur on and rein in depending on what you're getting from the freelancer. Right. That's that's right. You're kind of pushing and pulling depending on which direction the the material needs to go. And okay. Working, uh, licensed games in particular, I think, usually have an additional layer of that because before you send off the book to be printed, you usually send it to the oh, license holder sure. and then review it and make sure that everything jives what they're doing and that you're not like doing anything that will mess up their canon or doing anything that will interfere with any you know media other media that are going to be that's going to be coming out for it um, and different licensees work that differently some are, are very picky and some are just kind of like all right you screw anything up cool throw it out there um, <laughs> and but the developer in that for those licensed games is kind of the first line of that defense as well because you make you might get a pitch from a writer and then they send you like the first draft and you're like this sounded a lot better when the idea was not as fleshed out you kind of went in a weird way so let's figure out how we can get it to feel more like the the property okay gotcha wow for as much as 
like I enjoy playing games when you actually look at the meat and potatoes of how it's done. There's a lot of a lot that goes into it. And it's really kind of cool to get that perspective from someone. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to kind of fill us in and show us what's behind the curtain, as it were, <laughs> to getting to getting a game created. That's one of the things I really love about having guests, especially like you, to kind of help. There are people that listen, I'm sure, that are interested in getting in, into the game, as it were, uh, at that level. It, it's good to to flesh that out and give them information to temper their expectations. <laughs> so. Well, when I joke about crushing dreams, it, it is the kind of like, well, this is not easy and it's not necessarily quite as glamorous as the way what you might think, but it can be done if you buckle down and, and find the best way for you to do it because everybody has come in through a variety of different ways into into writing games. I started out writing semi-sanctioned fan fiction for Seven C, and that that was like my first real experience with 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 writing, and that parlayed into working for them officially, and then that parlayed into uh, other work down the line. And and some of it is just you know seeing somebody online, oh they're they write for this game, and sending them an email and being like, what do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? What the, the worst that somebody can do when you send off that email is say no. And that's that's part of being a writer is dealing with rejection. And uh, the sooner you start dealing with that and figure out and figure out a way to deal with it in a way that's healthy, the better you're going to be because you'll be able to get past that and continue to develop your craft as you go. Because that, that first real step out into the unknown of, you know, am I good enough? is, well, people are going to say no to begin with, but yeah. are you going to get back up after they say that? And whether that means you keep writing and, and keep developing yourself, keep talking to people and figuring out or making connections that might uh, provide opportunities or making your own opportunities by cranking out a game and putting it on Kickstarter and uh, and people back it for you know thousands and thousands of dollars. There are a lot of avenues to get to that point, and you just have to figure out which one is the best for you. No, absolutely. One last thing before we wrap up. Uh, I did want to ask you about your comic Kickstarter that we, yeah. heard, we heard a rumor about. What can you tell <laughs> us? Well, I am going to launch a Kickstarter for a comic book that I've been working on for the past couple of years. Uh, the title is Girls Heist Out. And it is a comic book that features, it's a heist comic book, so it's in the style of Leverage or Ocean's Eleven or um, one of those bits of media where the thieves do, or the thieves banter with each other, they do something impossible, and then they laugh, there's a freeze frame, and, and that's the end of it. So uh, the premise of the comic book is that there were a pair of masterminds named Adrian and Julia Price who worked together to bilk rich people out of their money until one day when Adrian left Julia out to dry and uh, fingered her for all the crimes that he committed. Uh, Julia escapes and then uh, assembles a team of other grifters to uh, help her out to get revenge on Adrian by stealing all of his big scores before he has the opportunity to take so the, the Kickstarter is for the first arc of that story where uh, she gets the new team together 
they run a couple heists and they try to steal a, a piece that has both significant monetary and sentimental value to Adrian before he can put it in his own pocket. The artist that I'm working with, uh, Manuela Soriani, uh, I met her through um, uh, Fred Hicks at Eel Hat because uh, she had done art for one of the other uh, Fate Worlds that, that had been released. And her art uh, really brings this very neat European heist flick look to the book. And I have seven pages of an 80-page comic book, and I need to finance the other 63, uh, or 73. Math is hard. That's why I'm a writer. Um, <laughs> so uh, once I get the, the Kickstarter in place, I'm hoping to launch at the beginning of March. Like, this month is kind of dedicated to getting those last pieces together, like the video and hopefully sending up other podcasts that are, that are in the comics realm that you know, are going to appeal to that uh, audience a bit more directly and getting all those pieces in place so that when I, I launch on you know March 1st or, or whenever that it does look polished like the, the Pugmire one or or, or, or or looks like something that you're willing to go, well, this guy's never done a comic book before, but he uh, has written a bunch of other stuff and the the Kickstarter looks put together in a you know decent ways, uh, and the spelling errors are minimal. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll play some money. I'll kick that way. Um, the, the the larger backer levels include uh, if you're a business doing a product placement for the issue. Oh okay. Um, so much like uh, you know when you watch a TV show and everybody's drinking Pepsi, well that's where we would do the same thing for for business. Like you know you might appear on a one of the uh, team members uh, is the kind of punky uh, hacker girl. So, you know, if you have a comic book store or a other nerd-themed uh, business that you'd want her to wear as your as her T-shirt for that uh, issue, we we be willing to do that for those who are willing to book at a at a certain level. We also uh, offer the opportunity for you to be put in the comic book either as a uh, minor character, as one of the like you know thug security guards or other people that the girls are going to outwit and, and you know, trip and sneak past. And the, the, the big backer level, which we, which we only have one of, and it is going to be you get to be the person who Adrian is working for and the reason why he sold out uh, Julia and the rest of the girls uh, as the main villain in the last comic book. Um, and uh, so your likeness uh, will be used as that villainous character You'll get to be a an, an actual comic book villain and brag to all of your friends. <laughs> That's really cool. Please, would you uh, let us know when when that Kickstarter drops? Uh, Galactic Netcast has a lot of different. We post stuff on our uh, uh, our Facebook group page and on our website, and we would we would love to highlight that and uh, and help out for sure for sure. Absolutely, we're going to have the 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 main product is going to be a graphic. A novel trade collection that collects oh, cool. uh, the first four issues, um, but we're also going to have digital individual issues as well for people who prefer uh, Comixology or PDF or, or whatever. And, and also, right now, we're limiting uh, the physical rewards to the United States because international shipping kills Kickstarters. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if, the, if you do have an international audience, we're trying to figure out a way to do it. We haven't found one yet. So right now we're kind of basically saying back digitally, and then if it comes out 
and we're able to figure out a way to get it out after the Kickstarter. Please buy it afterwards in your local home bookstore, you know, wherever in the world hopefully it gets there. But um, it, that, I think, is, is one of the challenges growing forward with Kickstarters is that either you limit your audience and by only saying you can you know, ship domestically and you run out of you know, six-sevenths of the reason why you would kickstart something, or you open it up and people flip out because $30 shipping, I'm not going to pay that, or you send it out with the $30 shipping and you have to send the package three or four times because they keep on not getting it. And that, that's one of the lessons that I learned because I've worked for a lot of people as a stretch goal. I you know, talked to them about doing Kickstarters, and that was like the one thing that everybody agreed on was like, I don't know if it's worth it. So with this being my first Kickstarter where I'm the central producer, I wanted to try to keep it as simple and as straightforward as possible. So sure. We're just going with that route, unfortunately. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, please, uh, you know, let Glenn and I know, and we would love to, to put that on, on our Facebook stuff and, and, and on our site, so. Certainly, certainly. Real Sized Out should be beginning of March, so look for it uh, on, uh, on the Galactic Net. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, will, I will tweet the heck out of that, man. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. You can go to gncasts.com slash adventure. Uh, you can find out more about our meetings and the show notes for each meeting, contact information, and subscription links by going to gncasts.com slash adventure. Uh, you can find and follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group by using the Facebook search term Galactic Netcasts. Uh, you can also find all of our social media outlets by clicking on the links on our site, gncasts.com. You can find our YouTube channel where you can see the video versions of our Adventure Party meetings at youtube.com. Uh, <laughs> YouTube yeah, there you go. YouTube.com slash galacticnetcasts. And if you're using iTunes or Stitcher to hear us, please take a moment to uh, rate us and give us a review and let us know what you think. Uh, your review, positive or negative, can help shape the show to be uh, better, uh, maybe highlight more of the things that you're interested in, or you know, maybe we should uh, focus on something a little bit more and other things a little less. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and uh, get your opinion on that. You can also leave us feedback by emailing adventure at gncasts.com. You can also call or text us at 805-328-3966. Again, 805-328-3966. Yeah, leave us a message and let us know what you're thinking. Uh, I want to thank you, Rob, for taking the time to, to talk with us. Where can people find out more about you and the work that you are doing? Well, I have a blog at uh, RoboWieland, R-O-B-O-W-I-E-L-A-N-B, dot blogspot.com. I can also be tweeted at that name. That's R-O-B-O-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Those are the two areas where uh, you can usually find information about what I'm working on, what, what's come up. The Twitter address is usually what I'm uh, I'm usually talking about what I'm working on right now, whereas the Blogspot is more of a catalog of hey, this thing that I worked on six months ago finally came out. Here it is, and <laughs> kind of go through my my backlog there. Okay, cool. Uh, we will make sure that we uh, post that in the show notes so people can check you out. Thank you. 
Uh, I want to thank Glenn once again for not only doing another show, but having a fantastic lunch this afternoon. <laughs> uh, where can people find out more about you, Glenn, and uh, you know about Mist Runner and the B Movie Bunker? You can find more about me on Facebook, uh, Mist Runner RPG, as well as B Movie Bunker. Same thing on YouTube. Uh, find me B Movie Bunker and Nico Productions. Or just follow me on Twitter at Naked Hobo. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Rob Wheland. I want to thank you, Glenn Bittner. And I want to thank you, the person who is hearing our voices, for joining us for another meeting of the Adventure Party. May your characters never die, and your adventures always be epic. Thank you, and good night. You have been listening to a production of Galactic Netcasts. For more about this show and others, go to gncasts.com. That's g-n-c-a-s-t-s dot com.